This is More Perfect. I'm Jad Abumrad. Uh, as you probably know, if you've listened to any of the previous episodes of the season that we have decided to make an album, it's called 27, The Most Perfect Album. We reached out to a bunch of uh, musicians to create songs inspired by the amendments to the U.S. Constitution, of which there are 27. And uh, on the podcast, and by the way, if you want to hear all the music, you can go to themostperfectalbum.org. All the songs are there. On the podcast, we are creating little liner notes for the songs, like little small takes on uh, how these amendments came to be or what they mean to us now. We're marching right along. We're getting close to the end. Uh, today we have two amendments and two songs. Uh, we're going to start with 25th Amendment. If you've been paying attention to the news recently, you know that the 25th Amendment has been having a moment. Trump officials have considered attempts to remove him from office. There were early whispers within the cabinet of invoking the 25th Amendment. And of course, that would require the cabinet members to vote out President Trump to remove him. The 25th Amendment is totally irrelevant to what's going on. It was the- this is the amendment that deals with how do you remove a sitting president from office who may not be fit to serve. Section 4. Whenever the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his... It it goes on a bit. I mean, it basically says if you don't think the president's up to snuff, here's here's how you get him out. It's very contentious, a very hotly debated thing. We're not going to talk about the current administration today. We're going to actually go back to a time way before the 25th Amendment when the whole question of a succession was far less clear. And we're going to tell the story of another administration in crisis. Hello. Hi, William. Yes. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. It is an amazing story. And uh, it came out of a conversation that producer Tracy Hunt had with a writer and author, William Hazelgrove. Um, okay, William, so um, we're going to talk about Edith Wilson. Fantastic. But um, why don't we start with uh, who, you, who are you? What's your name? What's your job? You know, stuff um, like that. My name is William Hazelgrove, written 15 books, and uh, Madam President, I think it was like number 12. How did you become interested in this since you've, you know, been working in, you know, fiction and, and other kind right. of genres? Yeah. Um, actually, I was uh, reading Scott Berg's biography on Wilson, and he had a really interesting line where he said, well, she was almost the president. Almost the president. Wilson, by the way, is uh, Woodrow Wilson, 28th president of the United States, 1913 to 1921. And the she being referred to here is his wife, Edith. And I thought, almost the president. So I started to do a little research. And what I found out was that he was totally incapacitated from a stroke in 1919. And that she, his second wife, only 42 years old, took over and absolutely was our first woman president. <laughs> um, so why don't we start with just like some kind of biographical stuff? You know, how do they meet? Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so Woodrow Wilson is ex- extremely depressed. His first wife, uh, Ellen Wilson, had died of Bright's disease, which is this kidney disease that lots of women died of at that time. This is 1915, by the way, and his first wife was only 54 when she died. And uh, he actually wanted to resign the presidency. He was severely depressed. And Dr. Grayson, who was his personal physician, said, you know, let's go for a drive. 
he just wanted to get him out of the White House. So they're driving along. And Edith Wilson is, or rather, Edith Galt is walking along the road. They drive past. Woodrow Wilson turns around and says, Who's that beautiful woman? Sue, who is Edith Galt? Well, uh, she was born in Whitville, Virginia. 1872. Her father was a judge, and after the Civil War, they lost all their land. Edith went off to two different girls' schools. Both were bad experiences, so she only had three years of schooling. But her whole thing was she wanted to get out of Whitville. Again, I understand that. I've been to Whitville. (laughs) She eventually marries a man named Norman Galt, who's a jeweler in Washington, D.C., And then Norman died. And she inherited his jewelry company. That, in fact, was not doing well at all. And everybody said, well, sell it, sell it. Sell it, sell Sell it. it, Sell it, And this is where you get the first glimmer of Edith as a very different person. She keeps the jewelry company and makes it profitable. Buys herself the first electric car in the District of Columbia, gets the first driver's license for a woman. And basically, she becomes a woman about town. And, you know, she's doing very well. And then, of course, on a fateful day, Woodrow Wilson drives past and says, uh, who's that beautiful woman? Now, his buddy who was with him that day, Dr. Grayson, he actually knew Edith. They had friends in common. And so he's like, great. He's like, wow, I can get this president out of his funk and I'm going to, you know, arrange this dinner. Dr. Grayson actually got Woodrow Wilson's cousin to invite Edith over for tea at the White House. And so that's how they they met the very first time, as it was sort of this arranged dinner. But the the motivation was for Grayson was, this is the first time that Wilson had sort of perked up after his wife's death. So she's a beautiful woman, according to Woodrow Wilson. What does she look like? Was she she Um, a babe? (laughs) um, Pictures don't do her justice. She has a very (laughs) Juno-esque figure, which is, you know, she's sort of... Uh, voluptuous. Uh-huh. And uh, Wilson, by the way, was a very sensual man. We don't get this from history, but he was he was into sex. <laughs> and um, he's 58. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, she has a very pleasant sort of round face. But here's the thing. Edith Wilson was very quick on the draw. She had a photographic memory. And Wilson loved that. He loved women who had were able to banter with him. His wife, first wife, Ellen, could not do that. She was very cultured, very refined, an artist in her own right. But she didn't have this sort of snappy repartee that Edith had and Wilson loved. But Edith was not as taken. First of all, Edith <laughs> was not looking to marry a sitting president. Yeah. Uh, she had a very good life. She had her own money. She could travel the world. Uh, she was an independent woman of her yeah. time. You know, she had her own company. And so, you know, the prospect of marrying this president did not really appeal to her. But how did he win her over, I guess? Uh, well, Woodrow Wilson uh, then started um, to do what he always does. Uh, he started to write lots and lots of love letters. <laughs> uh, do you did you bring a copy of one of these love letters? Um, yeah, let me see if I can pull it up here in the old phone. Um, <laughs> I had it, and now uh, where'd it go? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. You ready? Yeah. So, oh, actually, okay. like, is this like when they're still dating or are they married by uh, now? Yes, this is actually, like, this is fascinating. The Lusitania was just sunk. Quick note here. 
The Lusitania was an ocean liner that was attacked by a German U-boat back in 1915. Massive, massive loss of life. Something like a thousand people died, more than a hundred of them Americans, and... This is actually one of the things that helps bring the U.S. into World War I. News flashed. President Woodrow Wilson signed the proclamation of war against Germany. Anyhow, as the story goes, right after the Lusitania was sunk, people rush into Woodrow Wilson's office to tell him... They go, they go, Mr. President, the Lusitania was just sunk. And he goes, what do we know? Well, things are coming. He goes, let me know. And he goes back into a study, and he's writing love letters to Edith. So this is what he wrote right after the uh, Lusitania sunk. <laughs> my darling, my darling, if ever again I have to be with you for an hour and a half with only two stolen glances to express my all but resistible desire to take you in my arms and smother you with kisses, I'm sure I shall crack an artery. There, there you go. <laughs> he lays it on thick, I think. <laughs> yeah, purple prose is the word here. Now, how did they date? Here's how they date. It's sort of interesting. He had a big Pierce Arrow, and they would take this car way out into the country mm-hmm. and pull the curtain. You know, they had like uh, Agent Starling, one Secret Service guy, and they'd basically make out in the back of the car while they're taking <laughs> like these teenagers. Trips. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> They go out and stop in fields. They recite poetry. You know, they were a modern couple in that they would have fun. So a few months after they start dating, Woodrow really wants to marry Edith. And this is a problem for some of the people in his circle. His advisors, uh, Colonel House, his one main advisor, did not want this to happen. He thought it'd be terrible for the 1916 election. Because, as it turns out, Woodrow Wilson actually had an affair when he was married to his first wife. He had an affair with another woman named Mary Peck. And mm-hmm. he wrote Mary Peck a bunch of love letters, as he does everybody. Okay? Right. So now when he's going to go marry Edith... His advisor, Colonel House, who doesn't want this marriage to happen... Starts a rumor that these letters are going to be published. And so Wilson freaks out and sends a letter to Edith, basically saying, I had an affair... I'm sure you don't want to be with me. And it's delivered by Dr. Grayson. And mm-hmm. so Edith sits there. She she thinks about it all night long. By the morning, she says, you know what? The past is the past. Writes him back a letter. She doesn't hear from him for three days. And then Grayson appears at her door and says, you must come with me to the White House. They go to the White House, go up to the bedroom. Wilson is in bed. And she's like, didn't you get my letter? Mm-hmm. And he sort of nods. Uh, three months later, he goes, I have a confession. She says, what's that? I had your letter, but I never opened it. I couldn't bear to open it. So they opened it together. But think about that. A sitting president has gone to bed because his girlfriend is about to jilt him. So, you know, this guy is different. Oh, my God. He's he's a mess. Okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So uh, uh, let's uh, fast forward a bit. Um, So when did... um, When did he start getting uh, sick? Uh, So in 1919... All right, World War I has ended. At this point, Edith and Woodrow have been married about four years. And uh, he comes home with the League of Nations to try and get a path. President Wilson's League of Nations. 
the first assembly of the League of Nations was held in Geneva. The League of Nations was part of the peace deal that ended World War I, and it was Woodrow Wilson's idea. Geneva was to become the clearinghouse for the agreements and disagreements of the world. After the slaughter of this war that killed an estimated 20 million people, he wanted to create an organization that would keep the world from going to war again. But it didn't look like Congress is going to support it. Henry Cabot Lodge and the Republicans are like, no. And that's because of Article X. A provision that would have committed American troops to help a member nation under attack. We are not going to commit to sending troops around the world. And so Wilson says, you know what? I'm going to take it to the people. And at this point, he goes on a whistle-stop tour. 10,000 miles, 22 days. And a whistle-stop tour is a very tough thing for a healthy person. Especially out west, you're giving all these speeches. It's brutal, and Wilson isn't well. Wilson had a history of strokes, migraines, depression. So, outside of Pueblo, Colorado, Wilson has a stroke. And he calls to Edith and says, can you come here? He can't move his right arm. His head is pounding from these excruciating high blood pressure. Um, So they quickly decide to stop the whistle-stop tour and head back to Washington. So they go back to Washington. Wilson seems to get better. He goes to bed. And then in the middle of the night, Edith is up. She hears this thump in the bathroom, goes in and finds Woodrow Wilson laying on the floor with his head bloodied out. Wow. Grayson comes in, says the the immortal words, my God, the president is paralyzed. So what happened to him was he had a thrombosis, a blood clot in his brain, and he had a stroke that paralyzed the entire left side of him. He couldn't talk. He couldn't speak. Um, He he basically was very close to death at this point. Um, So then what happens is they bring in all these specialists, and they all come and examine him, and then they decide his only chance is if they hide him away Mm -hmm. and he gets the rest cure, which is basically, the rest cure was for anything they couldn't solve, heart ailments, uh, anything neurological. Right. And so they all turned to Edith and they said, any stress will kill him, Mm. will just kill him. You've got to take over. We'll help you, but you have to take over and keep all the problems from him. And that is the moment. That's really her inauguration. She even says, what about Vice President Marshall? And they say, no, you can do this. Um, We need you to do this. And from then on, Edith Wilson becomes the president of the United States. So that just seems bananas to me that nobody is like, should the president resign? Should he like it's it's it, that's just not even like really. I mean, she she does ask about the vice president, but like, why is why is it automatically like he should stay president in you know technically while she runs the company? Why do you think everybody just kind of rushed that that was the perfect solution? Well, because of this, the League of Nations was Wilson's baby. This is what he was staking his whole presidency. The belief was that if Wilson lost the presidency, if the Republicans knew he was sick, it would kill him to lose the League of Nations at this point. And and they thought, you know what, he could recover. So the conspiracy includes Edith. Wilson's secretary, Joseph Tumulty. Dr. Durkham. A neurologist. Wilson. And Wilson's good friend and personal physician, Dr. Grayson. 
Right. So he starts putting out releases saying the president is suffering from nervous exhaustion. You know, mm-hmm. He's in his bed. And so they started to paint um, this idea of a cerebral presidency. Yes, he's ill, but his mind is clear and he's running the country. Right. And, and where was the vice president in all of this? Didn't he want to become president? Well, no. Uh, here's, here's Vice President Marshall. So Marshall likes going on speaking tours. He likes getting money that way. He's really not interested in being president. So when this happened, they didn't even tell him. Um, oh, in fact, okay. they didn't tell him for two weeks later. But mm-hmm. finally, finally, some people prod him and say, you should go up and demand to see the president. So he goes to the White House and Edith Wilson meets him at the door and she, he says, I'm here to see the president. And Edith says, we'll let you know if we need you. And that was it. And he said, okay, turned around and left. Yeah, so he just, like, he was not in some kind of House of Cards way, you know, conspiring to, like, take over the presidency. He was just... The opposite of Frank Underwood. (laughs) He did not want the presidency at all. So Edith Wilson is running the White House. Okay, so let's start with what happens when she assumes the presidency. Edith set up a desk outside the presidential bedroom. And she would meet cabinet members and everybody else there. And as people approached with papers to be signed, appointments to be approved. You know, occasionally she would go in and take things into Wilson and get his take on it, if he could talk. Otherwise, she would just write on there, the president can't deal with this. In day-to-day running, Wilson cannot participate. So Edith would a lot of times uh, cover the appointments of people in the cabinet. Uh, she would take uh, you know, people who had to be ambassador. In fact, she would get laundry lists of things she had to do. You know, it's sort of a, a running checklist, and this involves the state, foreign policy, cabinet appointments. There was a railroad strike that she had to handle. There was this big wheat sale to Russia that she had to deal with. And of course, the League of Nations. So if power is a river, it would flow up to the door Mm -hmm. and then Edith would direct it away. So she governed by access. She governed by deciding what was important. Now, the question is, who's signing bills and everything else? Yeah. Well, Uh, Ike Hoover, his personal valet, said that Edith would take his hand. That would be Woodrow's hand. And move it on documents to emulate his his signature. At a point, she just started signing it. But Edith Wilson had very childlike handwriting. Wilson had this very ornate, you know, Princeton uh, signature. (laughs) And so what started coming back to people was this sort of childlike scrawl with these little circles. The signature looked different, too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And he says people started to get suspicious. Right. Yes. And so what about like Congress and, and, and everything? Did yeah. anyone call for any hearings or investigations or anything like a that? A lot of people in Congress knew. In fact, a guy named Senator Falls stood up in the Senate chamber and, and said, uh, President Wilson is not running the White House. We have a presidentress. <laughs> Mrs. Wilson is running the White House. President so, so, I mean, people, kn- people knew this, uh-huh. but they didn't have a smoking gun. And also, every time this would come out, Dr. Grayson would counter with another press release saying things like, Wilson's doing great. You know, President Wilson is so fit. I wish I was as fit as President Wilson. In the book, you and- do point out that a lot of reporters were actually pretty close to the truth. The New York Times and other newspapers would occasionally come out and say, uh, we think Wilson had a stroke. Uh, We think um, Edith Wilson is running the White House. Mm -hmm. And so Edith was like, we have to get him out. 
And so what she did was she had a special ramp built in the back of the White House, Mm -hmm. had the big Pierce arrow pulled up, which looks like an Adams family car. Mm -hmm. And they put Wilson, they they got a Coney Island wheelchair, modified it, put Wilson in it, pushed him back there. Then they lifted him, put his suit on, put his hat on him, lifted him into the car, put his right side out that, you know, was not paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And then they drove around Washington with Wilson sitting up as this sort of macabre, you know, white ashen figure. But people, and even New York Times, reported that they saw the president. Mm-hmm. The president was out for a drive. Right. So, again, she was manipulating the image and the press. And, and Edith was very good at this. But all this so makes me wonder, is she the president? Because, I mean, sometimes, you know, you know, like I understand, you know, she, she's, she's governing by access. I mean, is she really the president or is she just more like a chief of staff? Is she more like a... The presidency is not a reactive position. It's a Mm -hmm. proactive position. And Wilson Mm -hmm. could not be proactive on anything. The real smoking gun in all this is in the papers of Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. Up to 1919, everything was Dear Mr. President. After 1919, everything became Dear Mrs. Wilson. So remember, <laughs> all things were carried on by correspondence. There's no fax. There's no email, obviously. Mm-hmm. So these letters show that the power shifted from him to her. Producer Tracy Hunt from Radio Lab with that liner note for the 25th Amendment. William Hazelgrove's book is called Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson. So you might have listened to that story and been like, hmm, seems like maybe we should kind of have a plan for all of that. Like the president has a stroke and there's no plan for what to do. Well, it turns out it would take 48 more years for us to figure this out. JFK's assassination in 1963 pushed Congress to really make things official. And on February 10th, 1967... The 25th Amendment was ratified, basically setting in stone the official succession plan. And uh, for our purposes, for the album, the most perfect album, Devender Banhart wrote a song for us where he basically lays it out in song form. So it's so, it's, I love it. I love it. So we're just going to play the whole thing. 1600 Washington, D.C., that's where I am. Oh, no, poor me. Even though I'm at the bottom of the list Oh Lord, I never wanted this So won't you please, please pay attention To the following line of succession That's been in place since the 1700s till today It all began when the president Had a sudden and total awakening That completely rearranged their state of heart And even worse than a newly grown moral compass and a developing code of ethics, they got into art. And so out the White House they went, and next came the vice president, who ate too much drywall. After seeing Lincoln's ghost float oh so very disapprovingly down the hall. And so the Speaker of the House of Representatives prepared to lead, but due to their old jobs, roles, and responsibilities, they rarely spoke. And so ironically, when it came time to talk, they clammed up. And so the President, pro tempore of the Senate, showed up. But soon discovered and no recue, and left the White House for the cup. 
pick it up. And so in came the Secretary of State, but a heart attack was their fate. And so in came the Secretary of the Treasury, but swiftly called it quits. The minute they saw their feet, and so the Secretary of Defense arrived. It was a miracle that they survived after ingesting Jimson weed with the Havasubai. And as they rolled them out the joint, the Attorney General they did appoint. Whoopee! But before they went to bed, they self-immolated. Didn't even bother turning on the light. And so the Secretary of the Interior, though feeling morally superior, got caught that night on a dark website. And so the Secretary of Agriculture became top brass, but a heart attack at mass put him under the grass. And so the Secretary of Commerce made their debut on Pennsylvania Avenue, but after sniffing too much glue, now one more day could they get through? No. And then came the Secretary of Labor, but the time soon was done when they suggested a guaranteed income. And so the Secretary of Health and Human Services we chose, but their willingness to expose the truth about UFOs they did oppose. And so the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development they did recruit, but they read beginner's mind became a monk and soon resigned before they got the boot. And so the Secretary of Transportation we welcomed aboard, but the subway stopped halfway and service is yet to be restored. So the Secretary of Energy, we didn't list, but soon had to desist after the million scandalous tryst. But it wasn't that somebody found their prayer mat. Oh no! And so in came the Secretary of Education, but they showed up with a letter of resignation. And so the Secretary of Veterans Affairs became Commander in Chief. But the resulting HIV—they're not even TMS or EMD or CBT—could relieve their hypersensitivity, and so naturally they had to go into recovery. And so in came the Secretary of Homeland Security, but after trying to explain that the matriarchy simply means equality, it was all too scary. We had to set him free. And roughly after 323 million people more were swallowed by DC, it all fell on me. Now that's a drag. Devendra Banhart with a song for the 25th Amendment. We have a great uh, animated music video for that song. You can watch it and read uh, funny short essays about all the amendments and listen to all of the other songs on the album at themostperfectalbum.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect. We'll continue in a moment. 
I'm Jad Abumrad. This is More Perfect. We are marching through the amendments. Just did 25. Liner notes from Tracy Hunt, songified by Devendra Banhart. Moving right along. 26th Amendment. Right to vote at age 18. The right of citizens of the United States who are 18 years of age or older to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of age. The 26th Amendment is all about giving young people the right to vote. And it basically represents this moment in our history, moments, plural, where we as a country started to really ask ourselves, at what age do people, should people, have the right to have a voice in our democracy? Producer Sara Kari takes it from here. It all starts around World War II. In September 1940, the Selective Service Act was passed, and for the first time in history, American boys were being drafted have the confidence during peacetime. The gratitude and the love of your countrymen. During World War II, you had all of these young men who were about to be sent overseas, many of whom were 18 but still didn't have the right to vote because in a lot of states at that time, the voting age was still 21. For years, our citizens between the ages of 18 and 21 have been summoned to fight for America. And to a lot of people, that didn't seem fair. They should participate in the political process that produces this fateful summons. But the moment where people really, really start to get mad about this is Vietnam. Thousands of demonstrators opposed to the Vietnam War assembled in the nation's capital for a mass protest. They came up with this phrase. Old enough to fight, old enough to vote. Old enough to fight at 18, die at 18, old enough to vote at 18. And so with that, in 1971, we are certifying the 26th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. The 26th Amendment is ratified in just 100 days, faster than any other amendment in the Constitution. And actually, it's interesting to think about this amendment now. Because some young people recently have started to feel like 18 isn't good enough. Up next, the youth vote gets a little bit younger. A group of teenagers has formed a campaign called Vote 16 USA. They want to lower the voting age to 16 in cities across the country. Hello. Hi. Hi, Alec. Is that you? Yeah, it's me. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) How are you? (laughs) I'm good. This is Alec Shire. And I'm from Washington, D.C. I'm 16 years old. And and what kinds of things do you do, like, besides political stuff? Um, I work at a kombucha stand. Nice. That's just at my local farmer's market. Yeah, and then I'm also a host at another neighborhood restaurant. Alec has been in the news a bit recently. The idea here is to lower D.C.'s voting age to 16. He's an activist with this organization called Vote 16 D.C., which has gotten behind this bill in his hometown of Washington, D.C., to lower the voting age. After the Parkland, Florida shooting, D.C. would become the first jurisdiction to allow minors to vote for a president. And interestingly, Alec told me that that same argument from the Vietnam era... Old enough to fight, old enough to vote. It's come back around, but in a new form. It was, oh no, not again, another high school. All of the school shootings that have happened. Deadly shooting at a high school in Kentucky. In Rockford. In Southern California. In Santa Fe. Littleton, Colorado. They've created that same sense that if people are dying. Newton Elementary School. They deserve to have their voices heard. 
I just, I think it's really frustrating for me personally that it's taking us being shot in schools for people to be like, you know what, I'll, I'll give you the right to vote. Alec actually says that he should have that right for more basic reasons. I just think that, you know, every two weeks I get a paycheck and I get taxes taken out. And you know where those tax dollars go? They go into the council members' paychecks and the council members get to vote on budgets that include my hard-earned money and they get to decide where that goes. Not only that, he says that young people are already behind the wheel. You know, we're going 60 miles an hour, but you don't want us to walk into a voting booth and, you know, click a couple of boxes and make an informed decision. We drive a car. When we go in to apply for a license, we can choose whether or not we want to be an organ donor or not. So the basic point is, if you trust us to pay taxes, you trust us to drive, you trust us to be part of the decision to donate an organ, then you should trust us to vote. But here's the thing, right? When I went out on election day to ask people, do you think 16-year-olds should be able to vote? If they thought this was a good idea, um, most of them were like, no. Mm, no. I, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think 16-year-olds should vote. Absolutely not. No. That's around the time they're getting into marijuana, their judgment is off. No. <laughs> is that a thing that people are talking about? I even had a 16-year-old tell me that 16-year-olds shouldn't vote. There's a lot of kids who are really stupid and don't know anything about politics that are my age. And as for why, most people that I talked to, like that guy, they just had this gut feeling that 16 is really different from 18. 16 is still a child, is still a kid. 16 is not a grown-up. There are certain things that are wrong with that age. They might not be as informed about these issues. I mean, I'm thinking of my kids when they were 16. Or my people constantly are coming up to me after events. They look at me and they say, Alec, like, I trust you more to vote than me. You know, I trust you to make a more informed decision than... I trust myself, but what about the other, what about the other 16, 17 year olds? You know, just looking at social media, perhaps it gives you maybe a sense of that kind of 16 year old. Now, to be fair, I'm just wondering if I could ask you a quick question. Go for it. Um, at, at one point, somebody did think differently. Do you think 16 year olds should be able to vote? Oh, wow. That's a good question that I put absolutely no thought into. <laughs> Weirdly enough, that's Seth Meyers, the late night talk show host. Um, he was voting right where I happened to be gathering tape. What's what's your like gut reaction? My gut reaction is you could let 16-year-old votes and we wouldn't be any worse off. Do you know you're like the only person who said that? Yeah, I believe, I don't know, now I'm starting to doubt my answer. <laughs> but I'm going to stand by it. Maybe that's because cool. that's my demo. Awesome, <laughs> there we go. Take care. And as the day wore on, I actually did encounter more people who felt like... Maybe it's different now. All the musicians they're listening to are also talking about politics, and TV has politics, so maybe they're more informed. Maybe 16 today is different from 16 back in the day. I'm trying to think whether or not they would have a very strong opinion, but, you know, with gun violence going on, they probably do. Yeah, today's most 16-year-olds are mature enough to understand what's going on, Absolutely. Now, from a psychological perspective... By the time people are 16, their abilities to make thoughtful, deliberate decisions, to consult with experts when they wanted advice, that those, those abilities, by the time people are 16, are no worse than the abilities of adults. That's Lawrence Steinberg. Professor of psychology at Temple University. He says that the research out there seems to suggest that cognitively... The average 16-year-old isn't that different from the average 18-year-old. 
they're both equally likely to make bad decisions. It almost sounds like it's not that adults are smarter than 16-year-olds. It's that 16-year-olds are just as stupid as adults are. Um, I guess you could look at it that way. Or let's just say that the proportion of 16-year-olds who are stupid is no greater than the proportion of adults who are stupid. If that's the case, and it really is true that the average 16-year-old today is more politically aware than 16-year-olds in the past, then it really is hard to think of a reason why they shouldn't have the ability to vote. You know, right now, 16 to 17-year-olds, you know, me personally, Mm. I have nothing that a politician wants you lower the voting age to 16, they actually come to us and they're going to actually start to care about us. When I spoke to Alec, the vote in the D.C. Council was a couple months away and he was super optimistic that the bill had the votes that it needed in order to pass and that it would become the law of our nation's capital. If this does pass, you will see 16, 17-year-olds voting in 2020. I will be 18 at that time. Um, But I know I'm going to be like up early that morning and I'm going to take my neighbor who's going to be 16 at the time. I'm going to take him to go vote and be like, you're going to be the first um, 16 year old in the history of this country to vote for president. Bill 22-778, Youth Vote Amendment Act 2018. Councilmember Allen. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Finally, last week, the D.C. Council met to decide the fate of the bill. Earlier this spring, We watched incredible voices take the helm and lead our country. Uh, We saw incredible voices talk about gun violence. We saw incredible voices talk about action. We saw incredible voices lead a national conversation that the adults had not done. What we saw were young people stepping up to lead. And those young people were, in many cases, 16, 17-year-olds. That was Councilmember Charles Allen, who opened with that statement in support of the bill. But after him, another council member spoke. Uh, Mr. Evans. Jack Evans. Uh, Mr. Chairman, again, there is significant unreadiness on behalf of some of the council members, majority of the council members, so I'm going to make a motion to table this bill at this time. He proposed a motion to basically kill the bill. Uh, There's a motion before us to table the bill. Uh, A motion to table is not debatable. The 13 council members then voted on whether or not to table the bill, and... Yes. Councilmember Bonds votes yes. Councilmember Che. Yes. Councilmember Che votes yes. Councilmember Evans. Yes. Councilmember Evans votes yes. Councilmember Gray. No. Councilmember Gray votes no. Councilmember Grasso. Councilmember Grasso votes no. To make a long story short... No. Councilmember Allen votes no. Mr. Chairman, there are seven yeses and six noes. Uh, the measure is tabled. So for the moment, 16-year-olds are not going to be voting in Washington, D.C. in 2020. But that's just for the moment. Producer Sara Kari with that liner note for the 26th Amendment. The song that came attached to it on the album is from a Philadelphia band called Suburban Living.
Okay, More Perfect is produced by me, Jad Abumrad, Susie Lechtenberg, Julia Longoria, Kelly Prime, Sarakari, and Alex Overington. With help from Ellie Mistal, Michelle Harris, David Gable, Kat Slaslo, and Mo Asimiomo. Thanks to Nora Keller for her help making our record 27 the most perfect album. And our deep thanks to Jeffrey Wright for reading the amendments for us. You can listen to all the songs and read short, funny episodes about all the amendments and watch that video uh, of Devendra Banhart singing a song for the 25th at themostperfectalbum.org. I'm Chad Abumrad. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.